0: Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today...
1: You can never overestimate the, the stupidity of people who deal with these things. I mean, reading the judgment, it's clear that the judges have no understanding of the science behind
0: IVF. The Alabama Supreme Court has ruled that frozen embryos have the same rights to life as living children. The hand of IVF clinics has now been forced into suspension as those handling embryos can face legal action and serious criminal charges. So what does this mean for the future of IVF? We find out. Also on the program people can get addicted to
2: the whole game of being part of this community.
0: People are becoming addicts to TikTok, which is pocketing over $1 million per month from Australian users. Stay tuned for all of this and more coming up on The Wire. Less than a week before the annual Mardi Gras parade, the Mardi Gras board officially uninvited the New South Wales police force from marching in the parade. Federal police have since also pulled out. Organisers cited the need to provide the LGBT plus community space to grieve following the charging of police officer with two counts of murder for the murder of Jesse Baird and Luke Davies. Reporter Olivia Bowie found that Premier Chris Minns expressed hope for the return of police participation and a review of the decision.
3: I'm hopeful
0: that the talks between New South Wales Police and the board of Mardi Gras can come
4: to an agreement for Saturday's march. I think it's important to show progress in relation to police relations with the gay community in Sydney. Perhaps more importantly, I think it's
0: important because there's a lot of gay and lesbian police officers who are proud of their profession and proud of their community and want to march and many of them have been marching for the last two
4: decades. So-
5: Police Commissioner Karen Webb has faced criticism over her response to the Mardi Gras decision and this morning had this to say in response. There will always be haters. Haters like to hate. Isn't that what Taylor says? Um, but I've got a job to do. As I said, it's a big job this is just one of many jobs. We actually had seven—excuse <clears throat> me—seven murders last week. We had a triple murder out at Parramatta. Mm. We've had others. This, though, of course, is is a complex matter. All we need to do now is find Jesse and Luke, mm. um, so that their families know where they are. Although the commissioner frames the issue as solely finding Davies in bed, Inner West Greens councillor Liz Atkins says the situation extends beyond this one event and cites the decades of enduring strain between the police and the LGBTIQ plus community. Atkins shared their viewpoint at a press conference in Taylor Square today, a gathering that was organised in response to the recent announcement of the New South Wales police being excluded from the Mardi Gras march. Since at least 1978, we know that New South Wales police have had an attitude of violence and discrimination towards gay people, queer people, LGBTQ people. It's a long history. And the SACA inquiry into gay hate crimes showed us that the attitude hasn't changed. The report says the attitude hasn't changed. And I think the Commissioner's comments in the last few days around so-called crimes of passion and quoting Taylor Swift about haters has shown the sort of content that the New South Wales Police hold the queer community in. Member of the activist organisation Pride and Protest, Wei Tai Haynes, agrees with the acknowledgement of this violent history. Furthermore, Tai Haynes highlights concerns about pinkwashing that are unable to conceal this historical reality.
3: There is a very tenuous and strained relationship with the police, and that is because the police have exacted abhorrent violence on the queer community, both past and into the present. Um, the case of uh, Jesse and Luke is no exception to that, and we abhor the violence that was exacted upon them on the day of their murder. Uh, it is for this reason that we have campaigned tirelessly to have the police outside of the parade, because we do not believe that they have a place, pinkwashing their message and what they represent, when they exact so much horrible violence on our community.
5: Josh Pallas, immediate past president of the New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties, shares his thoughts on the lengthy and strained history.
4: Insofar as queer advocates like Pride in Protest say that there's a long history of violence that mars the relationship between police and the queer community, um, from our perspective as the Council for Civil Liberties, um, we accept that as correct and it accords with our experience of monitoring policing over decades. Given the
5: enduringly tense relationship, Ty Haynes expresses approval for the removal of the police from the march.
3: We welcomed the decision of Mardi Gras yesterday to um, remove the police um, from the parade as directed by the board. Um, we are standing by as we observe updates from uh, the lobbying and the pressure of the police force and uh, the Labour government to try and get the police to march again. Um, and we... Hope that Mardi Gras maintains and backs the call to keep the police out of the parade in light of the tragic events that have happened and just how deeply hurtful and tragic and um, how politicised they have become in relation to how the queer community relates uh, to the police.
5: But beyond the specific Baird, Davies, and Mardi Gras controversy, there are appeals to consider the broader perspective. Palace emphasises the importance of making tangible future measures to protect the community from police violence.
4: There are three things that we're calling for. The first is disarming general duties police. Uh, If police don't have guns, easily accessible and readily available, it'll be harder for them to kill and maim people. Uh, The second is police investigating police is no longer good enough, if it ever was good enough to begin with. So the police commissioner saying that the Victorian police commissioner is going to look into the New South Wales police weapons policy is not good enough. That's not independent. Any Investigation needs to be independent of both the New South Wales Government and police forces. And the third is the process of police investigating police after critical incidents just needs to change. It's not good enough that people have to leave police up to investigating poor police conduct. The Law Enforcement Conduct Commission has found that its oversight measures are um, inadequate why don't we just shift all of those investigatory powers to them? Olivia Bowie
0: there with that report.
6: Whenever I want to catch up with current affairs in Australia, I head to thewire.org.au or I follow them on Twitter. I just search for The Wire Radio, all one word. And yes, they're on Facebook too.
0: Recent research conducted by Queensland University of Technology and the ABC has revealed that Australians spent a whopping $1.9 million on 84 of TikTok's biggest streamers in the space of just one month. It was also found that 70% of each dollar donated by fans was pocketed directly by TikTok, with only 30% going to the streamers. Georgia Hayway asked Patrick Wickstrom of the School of Communications at Queensland University of Technology why people are sending such vast sums of money to their fans on a platform which takes almost 70% of the cut?
2: That is a good question. I mean, these 84 streamers that we are looking at, they are very good at attracting loyal audience and... They are not focused on any particular genre, such as music or cooking or anything like that. They are just talking and chatting and having a casual conversation with their fans online. And on the question of why people are donating money to these people, you can look at it as busking on, in, in the street, right? So if you are seeing singer in the street and you think they're doing an excellent job, you are wanting to... To support them, and, and to so you give them ten bucks or something like that. So th- that is probably the reason why. There are some other darker sides of things, and that is that there are very gambling-like structures behind this, which means that people can get addicted to the whole game of being part of this community and we've seen and we give some examples in that article of how people spend more money than they probably should considering the the economy they're dealing with.
6: Part of your research in conjunction with the ABC involved donating some coins to a live streamer. Now it was revealed in this process that one coin was worth 93 cents but TikTok pocketed most of the donation with the streamer receiving only 37 cents. So how can TikTok receive such a large amount of money from a donation that should presumably go to the streamer.
2: Well, TikTok can do whatever they want, right? It's, so it's uh, it uh, th- this is the way that this chain has been set up. So you're absolutely right that if you uh, if you give $10 to a singer in the street, that singer gets all the $10. If you do the same thing on TikTok to a live streamer, the streamer only gets, well, something like 30%, sometimes a bit less than that. So seven out of the 10 bucks ends up with TikTok. How can they do that? Well, they, this is how it's been set up. And, and uh, TikTok isn't isn't hiding this at all, right? So it's, uh, it is not entirely easy to see how the money disappears along the way, but it's not hidden and they're not doing anything fishy. So if they want to do it this way, Uh, they can certainly do it as such. And and people seem to be okay with it in in one way or another, at least they're still playing the game.
6: There have been some people who have spent tens of thousands and even one person who spent $300,000 in a month. Do you think TikTok is an app that encourages addiction? And if so, do you think the Australian government has a responsibility to intervene and address this?
2: I think, that uh, TikTok and this, these kinds of gamified, as they say, activities encourage addiction. And in our interviews with these people, they expressed that they didn't feel in full control of their behaviors and, 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 and wanted to stop in the same way as when you go to a casino and you have a gambling addiction and so on and so forth. So there are very strong parallels between them. So it, looking at it that way, the Australian government, should have the same responsibility to regulate these kinds of behaviors as they do with other kinds of gambling. But it's difficult to define uh, and categorize this as gambling anyway. But it does indeed uh, encourage those kinds of behaviors. And, and from a purely moral point of view, you, it feels like, yes, this is something that we should do something about to protect these vulnerable people who, who might end up in ruining their economy using these these kinds of games, if I call it them.
6: And just one final question. As mentioned at the beginning of the interview, you recently co-authored a book on TikTok. Do you think TikTok is reshaping connection on social media for better or in fact making the way that we interact online with each other worse?
2: A bit of both, right? TikTok is the platform where Australians spend the most time. So there are wonderful great, lovely things going on on the platforms and there are some really dark, nasty things happening as well. So it's uh, difficult to say that it's only good or it's only bad. It would be wrong to say that let's kill off TikTok and social media platforms altogether, but it is important for the Australian government or any government for that matter to regulate these platforms in a way so we make them as less harmful as, as possible. And there are some really bad things going on on TikTok and some of them are being discussed in the media on a daily basis. And the little contribution that we've made is, is one part of that is uh, definitely a sad and, and worrying thing going on. on the-
6: Just quickly, are you able to elaborate on some of the dark spaces in TikTok for someone who might not be aware?
2: Well, the biggest concern that I've been raised about TikTok is how it is protecting young people and particularly uh, young people who are interested in particular topics. So if you, for instance, have mental health problems and maybe you have eating disorders and so on and so forth, you might get led into communities where those kinds of issues are being discussed in a way that is not really helpful for someone who is suffering from such problems. So it's that's quite serious matters that TikTok are claiming that they're trying to address, but they could do much
0: more. Georgia Hayway there with Professor Patrick Wickstrom of the School of Communication at Queensland University of Technology. Hey there, I'm Hamish MacDonald. Around Australia, you're listening to The Wire. Take it easy. As the war in Ukraine wears on, the defence continues to seek help through any and all avenues around the world. Australia has already provided millions in military-grade hardware, but a recent hiccup involving retired Taipan helicopters has remained a sticking point between the ADF and Ukraine. The National Press Club today, alongside the Ukrainian ambassador, co-chair of the Australian Federation of Ukrainian Organisations, Katerina Argeru, emphasised the importance of clarity in communication when organising aid for the war effort.
6: We as a community, we're happy to step in. If transport's an issue, we'll crowdfund. We'll find a way. If um, if it's a risk assessment issue, please let Ukraine make that risk assessment. They're the ones on the front line. They're the ones that can say whether they can use a certain type of equipment or not. Decisions being made by someone that's not in a war situation, it's very different to someone that desperately needs something on the front line.
7: I asked Dr. Matthew Sussex, fellow at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Australian National University, about the nature of Australian aid in Ukraine.
8: Well, Australia's provided, I think, now up to about $950 million worth of aid. Some of that's humanitarian, some of it's financial aid, but the vast majority is uh, is military assistance, over about $700 million. And that's mainly come from Australia's own stocks, um, whether it's been the Bushmaster armoured fighting vehicles, Uh, artillery shells or or drones and things like that.
7: In the realm of humanitarian aid, has Australian aid fallen short?
8: Um, I think the humanitarian aid at the moment is probably a secondary ask from the Ukrainians in terms of Australia. What they're mainly interested in is military assistance. But, you know, of course, every, every bit helps. And humanitarian aid has to also, I think, be looked at in terms of reconstruction assistance, because of course, Ukraine is now the most heavily mined country in the world and it's suffered an enormous amount of war damage. So reconstruction is something we also need to be focusing on.
7: Is there a reason why the Australian army is refusing to allow Taipan helicopters to be sent over to Ukraine?
8: It's very difficult to pin down uh, exactly why this is. The uh, one story was that the Ukrainians didn't get the paperwork in in time because, of course, the Taipan fleet was being decommissioned. Another story was that, in fact, the Taipans were already partly stripped, particularly of engines, and so therefore were unserviceable. There were some other reports about, you know, not being able to send spare parts so they wouldn't be airworthy. Um, So it's really unclear as as to the precise reason why the Taipans didn't end up getting gifted to uh, to ukraine
7: are there any other logistical issues preventing further aid from being sent to ukraine
8: well australia's just opened a uh a new ammunition plant in queensland and is ramping up production of artillery shells so it should be able to be you know in the position to provide more in that sense um i think you know the the, the next big ask from ukraine will be the fleet of uh, m1 abrams tanks that Australia is uh, in the process of replacing, uh, and it'll I think be interesting to see you know what the, uh, what the word will be out of uh, the Australian Defence Force uh, as to whether or not Australia decides to uh, to hand them over to Ukraine.:
7: Could we have a similar problem with those Abrams tanks as we're having with the Taipans where it's a clerical issue like that, or is it too early to tell?
8: Oh, look, I think it's far too early to tell, but um, it wouldn't be, certainly wouldn't really be spare parts because the Abrams is pretty ubiquitous when it comes to NATO armies. Uh, there are Abrams already in service with the Ukrainian armed forces. So uh, I think we can rule out spare parts as, uh, as, as a reason why the ADF mightn't send them.
7: What other support is needed for Ukraine from Australia? Are any similar kind of things to help bolster their military function other than just straight firepower?
8: Realistically, Ukrainians need just just those very very basic things that armies need, which is artillery ammunition, which is uh, tanks, weapons that can be used offensively, like for instance, you know F eighteen Hornet fighter planes, and uh, and also drones and demining equipment. I think is going to be uh, you know absolutely vital, uh, as well as training. So Australia has just extended uh, Operation Kudu, which is its um, uh, its operation to train Ukrainian uh, conscripts uh, over in the UK. And so that's something that we're doing in addition that I think, you know, has real value for Kiev.
7: Is there a realm in which that we could have a constant back and forth of munitions deliveries to Ukraine?
8: Oh, look, it's possible, but uh, it's not going to service uh, Ukraine's, you know, absolute needs. For that, you need a, a country with a you know, really significant production Uh, and that means the United States. So uh, I think certainly while whatever Australia can give is very much gladly welcomed by the Ukrainians, uh, it's not going to be ultimately decisive.
0: Associate Professor Dr Matthew Sussex, fellow at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Australian National University, speaking there with Stephen Samaras. The Alabama Supreme Court has recently passed a law stating that frozen embryos are considered children and have the same rights to human life. This law poses dangerous implications for the practice of IVF in Alabama. It threatens those who handle embryos with serious criminal offences if handled incorrectly. This ruling has already caused several clinics to suspend their services. Megan Grew asked Associate Professor Alex Polyakov, Medical Director of Geneva Fertility in the University of Melbourne, if he was surprised at the ruling in Alabama.
1: very much so this is not the first attempt in the united states there were a number of cases in the past which tried to arrive at this outcome where the argument was that embryos are children and therefore they should have the same moral standing and the same legal rights as live children
6: and how did these laws pass
1: Well, it's interesting you should ask that. In Alabama, there is a law which was passed in 1874, which allows for collection of damages if a minor is killed due to negligence or deliberately by the parents. That law has been used in the past, over the past 20 years, to extend it to unborn children. So this is part of the agenda to prevent the availability of abortion in Alabama. And so this is the next sort of logical step in that progression. So these laws were applied initially just to live children once a child is born alive. Mm -hmm. Then over the past few decades, it was extended to unborn children. And initially it was to prevent late term abortions, but then It was also extended to prevent any sort of abortion and now the judges have said a child is a unique individual whose life begins at conception and ends at death and so if you take that view conception takes place when we put embryos and eggs together to create an embryo and therefore embryos are children and therefore they should have the same protection as any other child.
6: So what are the implications for those handling embryos? I know you've stated that a large part of IVF is um, conceiving multiple embryos.
1: Well, that is the standard everywhere else but Alabama at the moment. Uh, When we do IVF, we always aim to create a number of embryos because every embryo has a limited chance of producing a baby, probably about 40 or 50 percent with the best prognosis patients. But in some patients who are All day, it could be as low as 1% to 2%. And so, if you have multiple embryos, you put one in, and if it doesn't work, you can thaw one from the freezer and use it to try to get pregnant again. Now, in Alabama at the moment, no clinic would be game enough to do that because then they sort of take responsibility for those embryos that are considered children. And let's just say that a couple creates a number of embryos and get pregnant and then don't want to get pregnant again. What happens to those stored embryos? I mean, are they going to be looked after by the clinic or the state because they cannot be legally destroyed or discarded? They cannot be donated to research because that results in the destruction of embryos. Even donating those embryos to other couples would be problematic because based on this decision of the Alabama court, You would have to go through the whole process of adoption, and that that is really quite difficult. And so the result currently is that the majority of clinics, or at least some clinics in Alabama, have decided to suspend their IVF services until this situation is resolved.
6: Do you think that this situation will be resolved? As you said, that we don't know how you would discard them. Logically, what are you supposed to do in that position? Say if clinics right now have
5: embryos stored, what are they supposed to do? They
1: they have to be extremely careful not to destroy any of the embryos because if they do, the parents can sue them for damages, but also there is a real possibility that they could be charged with criminal offences such as manslaughter or murder uh the only way this can be resolved is if the legislature of alabama passes a law excluding embryos from that particular legislation. The judges have said that such a law may be unconstitutional in Alabama because in Alabama's constitution, there is a provision that all life or human life is sacred and should be protected.
6: Do you think that there's a space in America for this law to be passed in other states? Say, Uh,
1: Well, I, I think there is. You can never overestimate the the stupidity of people who deal with these things. I mean, reading the judgment, it's clear that the judges have no understanding of the science behind IVF and how it is actually done. And they use phrases like frozen children and cryo nurseries to describe storage of embryos. I mean, this is the very, very fringe of right-wing politics in, in the United States. And so I can see how other states may arrive at the same place eventually.
0: Associate Professor Alex Polyakov, Medical Director of Genea Fertility at the University of Melbourne, speaking there with Megan Grew. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcasts around the nation on the community radio network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal Country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company.